0: Find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself, Well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the final day of our Merry X-Life special. And uh, just like last year, we're going to wrap up with an issue of Generation X. And, uh, well, also, just like last year, our holiday issue of Generation X will not really be all that (laughs) holiday-ish. Besides, like, the... I guess the time when the story takes place. Uh, there are some mentions of uh, of Christmas, and the story, as I think all of our stories have this year, uh, takes place on Christmas Eve. But if we're expecting, you know, a holly jolly outing here, uh, we might just be barking up the wrong tree. Uh, how about we hop right in? This is Generation X number 24, had a February 1997 cover date. Story is called Home for the Holidays, written by Scott Lobdell, with pencils, or guest pencils, by Rick Leonardi, with Mitch Bird, guest inks, by Bud LaRosa, with Jason Morton, letters, Comicraft, with Richard Stockings, colors, Steve Bucciolato, edits, Bob Harris, cover price, buck ninety-five. Now we open, and as mentioned, it is Christmas Eve, and we've got Emma Frost seductively leaning against an open door, talking about, uh, well, the fact that it's Christmas Eve, and how much she likes Christmas Eve better than Christmas Day. And, you know, I think she's got a pretty good point there. Though the reason why she thinks Christmas Eve is so much better is because on Christmas Day you're already uh, disappointed. <laughs> and on Christmas Eve there's still hope that you won't be disappointed. I I feel differently about that. I like Christmas Eve, and, you know, if I could take it even further back, I think one of my uh, most favorite days of the year is... Uh, is Thanksgiving Eve, um, jumping back to, you know, before the Christmas season actually kicks off, because, I don't know, there's a kind of a uh, weird magic in the air on, uh, on eves, right? Where, like, the world kind of comes to a pause. There's this electricity, this warmth in the air, but everything's kind of getting gummy, right? It's slowing down, people are preparing for what's to come, you know, this uh, little... Respite from the mundane, right? It's different for uh, the holiday season here. And uh, I actually recently talked about this uh, when I appeared on the 21st Century Boys podcast um, about about a week or two ago. It was their, uh, their Christmas episode, and I was a part of that. It was a great time, and I, I recommend anybody uh, listening uh, maybe track that episode down, check it out, because uh, we had a lot of fun there. But the gimmick was that we'd each bring a uh, Christmas story that was special to us and and talk about it, right? And uh, the one I chose to discuss was uh, a short story from Christmas with the Superheroes number 2 from uh, DC. I believe it came out in 1989 or 90, I think 89. And this was a story featuring, um, well, a character I really don't have much affection for, but the story is is solid. Uh, It was a dead man story. And uh, if you follow this channel, you'll know that Dead Man, not one of my favorites. <laughs> Certainly not one of my favorites. But uh, this story is very, very special um, for a few reasons. Uh, one, it, uh, ha- it's a post crisis story that features the pre crisis Supergirl, or at least uh, someone who highly resembles and is very much uh, a spiritual. I don't know, not successor necessarily, but a uh, plainly obvious stand-in for uh, the pre-Crisis Supergirl who had been, you know, written out of existence with the Crisis. But uh, that was a very important part of the story. But another part of the story that really uh, affected me uh, personally was how um, Dead Man talked about how Christmas, uh, the Christmas season was um, an especially lonely time for him because, well, people were different. People are different during that time of year where... You know, dead man does take over other people's bodies, but during the holiday season, it's different. You know, because everybody is maybe not so much on their best behavior, but they're they're out of the mundane. You know, there's uh, this like I said, this magic in the air. It's a time of warmth and family, and uh, dead man actually he actually does take over a body uh, for a Christmas party, and the whole time he's like just beaten with guilt over the fact that he's robbing this poor uh, fella of this time, this warm and wonderful time with his family. And that scene kind of facilitated a conversation about, you know, this time of year and how things slow down and how uh, priorities change. And, you know, the the everyday kind of goes away for a little bit. And um, it uh, led to me referencing one of my very favorite uh, Christmas songs, and that is the... Judy Garland version of uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas Which is a a song that uh, It affects me just about every time I hear it Because uh, You know I think about um, You know sitting across the table From family on Christmas Day And how uh, At that point It's pretty much over right You know I promise we'll get back to the comic In just a bit here but Emma talking about How Christmas Eve is so much More special than Christmas or she just likes it more and uh, I totally agree because it's not over yet right There's still something to look forward to you, you, the, the, the warmth isn't done yet you know and uh, there's a line in the garland version of uh, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas that isn't in all the versions of that song. Um, there's that's there's a line that says uh, someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. And in a lot of the versions of the song, the next line is, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. But in the Garland version, and a few other versions, but the Garland version specifically, she says, until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. And uh, it, it always strikes a chord with me, and it, it affects me in a, in a deep and uh, perhaps an embarrassing kind of way, but... You know, you think about sitting across the table from your family on Christmas Day, and you come to that realization that, you know, you're about to re-enter that period, that extended period of muddling through the mundane. You know, everything's going to go back to normal. The world's going to get a little bit colder, even though the weather gets warmer. You know, in this hemisphere, it's it's just a very it's a very bittersweet sort of feeling. Well you know life has to go on, of course, but uh part of you wishes you could just hold on to the moment for a little bit longer, and as long as it's Christmas Eve, you can right because it's not over yet um and if you're listening to this episode on the day this uh this episode actually hits the feed, it is Christmas Eve, so um, hey, if you're listening on Christmas Eve, maybe uh and you feel you know as uh, as cringy as I do um. Maybe just take a moment and consider that it's Christmas Eve here and uh, realize how uh, it's not over yet, you know, and how there is still some stuff to look forward to. Uh, you know, it is fleeting. It is quick. It's cruel. <laughs> it's very cruel how quickly this time of year is, uh, is taken from us. But, uh, hey, if you're listening on the day this came out, it's not over yet. So uh, make the most of it and enjoy it. Um, I mentioned, like, a hundred minutes ago that uh, Thanksgiving Eve was uh, my favorite, you know, day of the year. And that goes back to uh, a job I had in the mid-2000s um, where I was a plant supervisor for a recycling outfit. And I've talked about this job uh, several times before on this channel, just uh, not, not, on, not on Xlapsed, uh, just various other programs where I've talked about this. But I remember on Thanksgiving Eve, a buddy of mine and I would have a, a ritual and I don't even know if I ever shared the real reason why we had this ritual with Eve, with him, even. But uh, for lunch on Christmas—not uh, Christmas Eve, Thanksgiving Eve, we would go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, which probably sounds ridiculous <laughs> to do that on the day before a holiday that's known for, you know, gorging yourself. But uh, I did it for a very specific reason, because lunch on the day before— Thanksgiving was kind of like the end of the year. It was like the last vestige of that mud- muddling through period, the mundanity of life. And, you know, you'd go and you'd people watch and you'd see that, you know, things were about to change for a little while, you know, a brief, uh, cruelly brief time. And you see how reality is about to kind of go away. And I mean, uh, maybe I'm just very uh, childlike and naive, but uh, I kind of thrive in the make-believe You know, when real life kind of takes a backseat to a season of like warmth and novelty I- I'm, I- I- I'm okay with that, <laughs> I can dig that um, You know, later on, on, uh, on Thanksgiving Eve, uh, I would have to walk the premises of the, uh, the plant And uh, lock up all the gates And we were in an industrial area in South Phoenix that was usually very, very busy. And uh, there would be traffic, there'd be trucks, there'd be noise, there'd be just... It would be a disaster there at any time of day. Because, I mean, Phoenix is and was kind of a a transport hub. You know, we are a gateway to the West, you know, uh, California. And then we're also where, you know, trucks from California stop when they're headed back East. So... We're very much a transfer station I think that was why Phoenix was founded in the first place all those years ago But um, it would be a disaster Every day, except for Thanksgiving Eve Thanksgiving Eve would be this very strange Like almost this dissonant feeling Where it's both warm and inviting and comfortable But it was also desolate you know, you felt like uh, you felt like everybody was coming together, but there was nobody there. You know, I would go around locking up those gates and it would be silent. and the streets that i that I would see packed every single day, there would be nobody there. And that told me that you know we we made it. you know, we made it through the year, and now it's time to you know get our you know month long reward, you know the just the change up the 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 vacation from muddling in the mundanity, a very, very special day, and one that I, uh, still hold, you know, close to my heart whenever, uh, whenever the season comes around. I, I, I think back to those days and, uh, I get a little bit of a warm feeling, which is, you know, odd, considering that, uh, <laughs> I was usually the only, uh, the only person, you know, there. So, I don't know, let's get back to the issue here. Uh, so Emma says she likes Christmas Eve uh, better than Christmas, and uh, I agree. I agree, but for different reasons. Now, anyway, I mentioned she's standing there seductively, right? She is there, just, you know, the sex is out, right? Now, if you were to see how she's standing there, you might think she's doing so to, or in order to, like, seduce a room full of men or potential suitors, but no, no, it's just a Jubilee, Husk, and M., Which either makes it a bit weird, or makes me a bit weird for my mind immediately going there. Anyway, now the ladies are at Monet's home, or family home, in Monaco to celebrate Christmas. Jubilee, as you might imagine, is being all shades of cynical. She talks about how Christmas can be a letdown for some people, and that is why she never asks anybody for anything, which, that's a bummer. M is staring at a chessboard, uh, you know, nobody else but her seems to be all that interested in. Uh, this was during the M is autistic era, so we were getting a lot of her being, you know, kind of zoned out and or hyper focused on things. Anyway, Monet finds Jubilee's cynicism annoying, and she isn't wrong. Paige is there to be the down home hayseed, waxing poetic about Christmas on the farm, to which Jubilee asks, like, Hey, why aren't you on the farm right now? Now, you see, Paige decided not to go home for the holidays because of what happened during Thanksgiving when she brought Jono, Chamber, home to meet her folks. It didn't go well. And so Husk decided to sit Christmas out. Now, it's worth noting she is thinking this to herself in order to silently exposit, right? But then, Monet lays it all out to Jubilee about the complete crap show that the Guthrie Turkey Day turned out to be. Now, Paige is ticked off, assuming that either Monet chatted up Jono and got the details, or... Just read her mind Monet says she doesn't read minds Which causes Ms. Frost to clear her throat Jubilee talks about how Jono is actually pretty cute Under all the hideousness that is Chamber Paige psychically pleads to Emma to change the subject And so she does So now we're going to get into the meat of the issue uh, As it were It's kind of like a game of skeletons in the closet Kind of like that one episode of 90210 when that real, like, awful girl came to sleep over Brenda's house and was trying to, like, embarrass everybody and make them feel like crap. It's kind of like that, but not quite as severe. Jubilee suggests that, you know what, we're all pals, classmates, compadres, we're a posse, even. So maybe we shouldn't keep any secrets from one another. So maybe they should share some personal stories. And the personal stories du jour is about how they discovered they had a mutant power. Jubilee offers to go first, and she flashes back to her time as a troublemaking mall rat who would raise hell by (laughs) rollerblading around the mall with her friend Sinjen, which is short for Cynthia Jennifer. Uh, Why not just call her Cindy? I don't know. So here's the thing here. They're raising hell, being all badass in their neon blades and protective gear, pretty much baiting the security guards or rent-a-cops or actual cops into chasing them. I don't see why anybody would think this was fun. It's not like they're, like, shoplifting and trying to get away. They're just, like, baiting cops into chasing them. Whatever. Anyway, this one time, as Jubilee is fleeing the scene, she makes a wrong turn down a fenced-off alleyway. The officers catch up with her, and they're just about to nab her, which, in Jubilee's words, would majorly bum out her parental units. Uh, You remember when faux slackers would talk like this? You know, I often think back fondly on being a 90s teen, but, uh... Oof, uh, we we did most definitely have our fair share of cringe. Parental units? Stop. Anyway, it's here where Jubilee's power's manifested, and she lets loose with some paffity-paff. This distracts the officers and manages to blast her way through the fence, so win-win, right? From here, we follow her to the coast, where she proceeds to just jam her hands into the ocean... She can remember how her hands felt hot, right? And how the only thing she could think to do was keep them wet. Sin Jen arrives a few moments later, and the two embrace. But Jubilee realized right there that nothing was ever going to be the same again. Back to the present, Jubilee looks like she's in tears, or near tears, I think. It's worth noting, the art in this book is fairly tragic, and it's about to get worse. So yeah, Jubilee's like, she asks if the ladies are satisfied by hearing her tale of woe. Which, wasn't this whole thing Jubilee's idea in the first place? Why is she so bent out of shape? Uh. Anyway, next up is Monet, who is still zoning out, looking at a chess piece because autism. Or as Jubilee calls it, Monet's altruism, which is funny in more ways than one. Monet corrects her and replies that just because Beast suggested she might be autistic... ...doesn't necessarily mean that she is. And, I mean, I gotta ask here, uh, has Monet taken the Are You Autistic BuzzFeed quiz yet? Because without that rock-solid evidence, how will she ever be able to make that claim on Reddit? Anyway, it's Monet's turn, and in typical Monet fashion, she proceeds to brag about what happened when she discovered her... ...wildly nebulous power set. Like, do we even have, like, like, a written list of what Monet can do? It seemed like she could just do anything... She basically frames this story like a fairy tale. How manifesting her powers made her the most popular girl in Monaco. She's kind of full of crap, though. And by kind of full of crap, I mean totally full of crap. And she's not she's not really fooling anybody. At this point, she's visited by her brother, Emplate. Which friggin' Google Docs really wants to autocorrect to template. I mean, it took me like eight or nine tries to get it to just stop and say Emplate. Anyway, he's here, and he slipped Jubilee, Paige, and even Emma into some sort of a trance state so he can chat up his sister. And this is where the art really plops into the toilet. Um, if I were to show you any of these panels, any of these characters who appear in the pages, if I would just get rid of Mplate, because it's obvious Emplate's Mplate, but I would bet money that you couldn't tell me what book we were reading, who these characters are. It is... A tragic might be too kind of a word for it. Anyway, M-Plate guilt trips Monet about his current lot in life and his vampiric needs before vanishing into nothingness. Basically, three or four pages of... I don't know. (laughs) Whatever this was. Then, everything is suddenly back to normal, the art still terrible. Uh, Jubilee calls BS on Monet's story and suggests that all M is whacked. With Monet's story done, the ladies next head out to the beach... And while Em and Jubes continue sniping at one another, the subject of the recent assassination of Graydon Creed comes up, and how it's making human and mutant relations tougher than ever. From here, it's Paige's turn to tell her story, and, uh... Well, like Paige herself, it's kind of goofy. You see, after finding out that her brother Sam was a mutant, Paige became obsessed with finding out whether or not she was one as well. And so, she tried all sorts of weird stuff to try and coax her abilities into manifesting. She leaps out a barn window to see if she can fly, and she doesn't. She uh, attempts to telekinetically rake up some leaves, and she can't. She tries telepathy on a turtle. No go. She then dunks herself in a tub full of ice for... Hell, I don't know what she possibly thought that would do. But it wound up unsurprisingly not to do anything at all. Then, one night, she headed out into the field to shout at the moon. Or something. She swore that if she didn't become a mutant soon, she would tear right out of her own skin. And, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of her gimmick, right? So she finds out she is a mutant, and she is very, very happy about it. Finally, it's Emma's turn to share, and I think, I may be mistaken here, but I think this might be the first peak that we'd ever gotten into Emma's childhood. Which is something that would be fleshed out a bit more in later years, including her own, that that weird, like, odd, ongoing series that spun out of that Marvel Tsunami manga chaser imprint. Anyway, her parents were assholes. And uh, so when she started showing signs of being different, as in, you know, having voices in her head 24-7, rather than getting her, you know, trying to get her any sort of help, they just tossed her into an asylum. There, it's implied that she was abused by the staff, uh, nebulously. We don't know exactly what the staff may have done to her. Until one day, where she came to the conclusion that if she could read their thoughts, well, maybe they'd hear hers as well. And so she psychically commands an orderly to take her out of the place. And, well, he did. Back in the present, Emma wonders if she just shared too much information with her students. To which Jubilee reminds her that, hey, we're all human, so don't sweat it. We then close out this scene with the uh, revelation that humans and mutants are different, which seemed to be the uh, revelation discovered at the end of most issues of the X-Books back then. Uh, we do get a Merry Christmas here, which reminds us that, yes, what we read is a, is a holiday issue. Now, this takes us to the actual end of the issue itself. We're back at the Massachusetts Academy, where former Gen X Mondo is trudging his way through the snow and woods of the property, or the... Grounds, I suppose. He's being guided by a shadowy fellow. And, uh, he's told that it's soon time for them to strike, but they gotta wait just a little bit longer. Perhaps, uh, you know, until the Milestone 25th issue of Generation X comes up next. Oh, and, uh, the next issue blurb promises, uh, quote, Black Tom's Revenge. Which kinda takes the wind out of the baddie being hidden in shadow here, doesn't it? So, what can we say about this issue? Um wasn't my favorite. Uh, this is a this is a weird one because uh, you know if you've been listening to the the previous four issues or four episodes of this program, you'd hear me saying how, you know, I can't wait to get to these in the essentials program. It's like I really want to get to this era in essentials so we can talk about things with context. But with this issue, it's like I almost feel like we need to launch the inessential X lapsed because I'm pretty sure all the origin stories that we heard here are either contradicted or told in a different way or just flat-out ignored in the future here. I feel like these origin stories really don't get um, their fair shake. Plus, we just have this disaster that uh, would happen with Monet in coming months here. I don't think that anybody really knew what to do with the character. I mean, and maybe this isn't the right time to even have this... Little mini discussion here But I remember when Generation X launched And the fact that they had this character that they just called M It felt so half-baked Even from the get-go It felt like they really didn't know what to do with her from Jump Street You know, she doesn't have a name that would indicate what her powers are I don't think anybody ever even knew what her complete powers are Even in X-Corp, she had these weird and nebulous And highly convenient story specific powers that I really just don't know what to make of her I would always think about Monet as uh, There was a member of uh, the Brotherhood of Dada over in uh, the Morrison Doom Patrol Whose uh, power was that they had any power you never thought of or something like that Like (laughs) they had all the powers you never thought of And that uh, that was Monet to me and it it works as like a one off comedy ish villain, but as a you know headlining character who's gonna be, you know one of the you know tent poles of a team book or the lead in another book, it just doesn't really work. I feel like there has to be, maybe not so much a relatability because her whole character is the fact that she's not relatable, but it, it, there needs to be something you can kind of, you know, latch onto to understand just what this character is. Her nebulous powers of perfection are just that. They're way too nebulous, they're way too far-reaching, and, um, you know, it's one of those things where if you pile up mystery on top of mystery on top of mystery, suddenly none of the mysteries mean anything. And I think that's where they got to with Monet, to the point where I want to say it was James Robinson who gave us the weird, you know, M-Twins thing in the pennant's body and the big switcheroo and all, all that <laughs> disaster that led to the hammer run with the pukas and, ugh, yeah, just not a not a good run. And I'm fairly certain I read uh, Scott Lobdell's original plans for Monet and even that wasn't uh, something that was going to rock any socks. Anyway, back to the issue itself here, which um it was the very definition of filler i feel um we had guest art guest inkers um and the art uh, i uh, i i hate saying bad things about art cuz i'm i'm not an artist but yeah uh, oof this was not pretty to look at all the time uh there were a few pages that were all right but when we got to the middle portion where uh, marius or uh, empath showed up oh boy that was some very unpleasant art. The kind of art where you you think that they were probably pushing on the deadline for this issue with like a bulldozer. They were really, really at the, at the wire here, which is unfortunate, of course. But it is worth noting that this is a 24th issue, we're about to jump into a, an oversized 25th issue. Makes sense that they would have some filler here in both creative and in story content. They needed to kill a month here, and they chose to kill a month with, uh, you know, some girl time, some skeletons in the closet that perhaps could have been better served as just a plain old holiday issue. You know, get the team together, have them have some eggnog and hot chocolate, and... I don't know. I I don't feel strongly enough about it to say it's a missed opportunity, (laughs) but, uh... It could have been. Uh, it could have been better. This was not a great one. And upon revisiting it, it's uh, made all that much clearer as to why this was not put on Marvel Unlimited yet. I had to actually dig the physical issue out to read this one. So, I thought it was odd that uh, the Generation X coverage on uh, Marvel Unlimited was so spotty. And I mean, it is very, very spotty. Out of the 75 issues of the original run, I want to say there are like. 10 or 15 on Unlimited, which is very, very bizarre to me. But when you have issues like this, it becomes clear as to why maybe it's not worth the time to, uh, digitize them all. But I think that's all the convention I have to do about this issue. And that takes us to the end of our merry X-Lapse excursion for 2021. And I swear, the, uh, this week just flew by. Just like, uh, this month, and I guess just like the year. Time just, uh, Time's a sumbitch, isn't it? (laughs) Time goes by way too fast. But um, I want to thank you all so much for joining me this year. Not just for Merry X-Labs, not just for regular X-Labs, but for everything that we do here on the channel. It really does mean the world to me that you're all here and that we get to share these moments together as as fleeting as they might be. But uh, thank you all so much. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season, a safe and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, happy anything, happy anything you celebrate or don't celebrate. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful day, and uh, I look forward to returning uh, to muddle through with you all in the uh, coming weeks and into the new year. So um, I will leave it at that, lest I don't become too emotional. (laughs) Just one more giant thank you For uh, spending some time with me During this time of year And uh, until next time, as always I will talk to you again real soon See ya going on deep inside your heart